0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly
2: clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I believe it was in May of 2012, only slightly over one year after Fukushima, that bluefin tuna caught off the coast of California were tested for radiation and every sample found had radioactivity in it. Here's what's interesting. They haven't really been testing for it since. There was a program and they were the ones who discovered this initial contamination. Immediately thereafter, they lost their funding on the program and it was not renewed. So that's the kind of manipulation that we're seeing behind the scenes to keep the public in ignorance and to, I believe, manage panic more than provide for any kind
0: of safety. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Labi Halevi. Today's show, we're all in the nuclear hot seat. Labi Halevi is the producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, a weekly international news magazine on all things nuclear. She is the author of Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. An award-winning playwright and broadcaster, she was visiting friends one mile from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island when it happened. Today we discuss the ongoing natural gas mega leak in Aliso Canyon in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, its impact on the nearby residential area of Porter Ranch with special emphasis on radon, the unfolding disaster of Fukushima, Japan, Wildlife in the Pacific Ocean, regulatory and health organizations, the nuclear industry, and Three Mile Island. Labi Halevi, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. I'm honored to be here. I've been reading your book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. To say that the information in your book regarding radioactivity from accidents at nuclear power plants is alarming is an understatement. And now we have the additional but different sort of disaster unfolding in Aliso Canyon in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. On October 23rd, 2015, what is being described as a massive natural gas leak erupted at a storage well owned by the Southern California Gas Company, and it's still unrepaired. The location of this disaster is often referred to as Porter Ranch, which I assume is the adjacent residential community. Before we talk about the problems with nuclear power, let's talk about this Porter Ranch disaster. It's actually quite complex. What are the contaminants that are being discharged in the atmosphere in what is described as a mega-leak, one of the biggest ever recorded?
2: First, people have to understand that the area that is leaking is a storage facility that was made out of the remains of where oil was pumped out back in the 40s and 50s and the like. It was left with a big tavern underground, which was then converted into a storage space for natural gas. And uh, this is enormous. I believe it is the largest in the country or the largest west of the Mississippi, something like that. The accident happened because there was supposed to be an underground emergency shut-off valve in place in case a pipe blew, which is what happened. These are very old pipes. And when it blew out, it turns out the emergency valve needed a spare part that couldn't be found, and way back in the 1970s, I think it was 1974, the safety valve was completely taken out, so there's no way to shut this down. And they have been trying since the week started in October without any luck. There have been multiple attempts to do so. What's in the release, yes, there is methane, the global warming gas. There is benzene. We are now hearing that The methane is being worked on in the environment and perhaps is turning into formaldehyde, all of which are very toxic. From my perspective, though, the unexamined effluent that is being released is radon gas, which is radioactive. And that's what I've been attempting to track with very little success in, actually no success in getting any hard numbers on it. But from the earliest materials that came out from the gas company, when they listed They're trying to dilute the awareness of methane and say, well, we've got these other things in there, too. They always mentioned radon gas. And radon, for people who aren't familiar with it, it is a decay product of radium, which is a decay product of uranium. And it's always present in fracking. Fracking releases radon gas, always. Radium, which decays into radon gas. The radon that is being released from Porter Ranch is coming from a high area in the hills. The gas that is being released is coming out. The methane and the benzene rises and gets wafted across the San Fernando Valley and in directions east and west. The radon, however, is heavier than air, which is why we find it in basements. It's naturally occurring in many locations. So there's radon mitigation. People are familiar with that. It usually concentrates on the basement. Well, in this instance, the radon is rolling downhill into the valley. The gas company is trying to make us believe that there is no danger from the radon because it has a half-life of 3.8 days, which doesn't sound like that long. What they don't bother to explain is that it takes between 10 and 20 half-life cycles for... Radon to go flat. For any radionuclide to go flat, it takes that many half-life cycles. Each time it's becoming half as dangerous, half as dangerous, half as dangerous. So radon itself is above background levels for anywhere from 38 to 86 days. However, one of its decay products, what it decays into is radioactive polonium and radioactive lead-210. The lead in particular is dangerous because it has a half-life of 22.3 years. And it's lead, which is dangerous in and of itself. So on a progressive basis, the San Fernando Valley below and around this terrible gas leak is being hit by radioactivity. And by the way, radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer after cigarette smoking. So it's being hit by the radon in addition to the methane, in addition to the benzene, in addition to things that we don't even know what they are in there. And there is still no tapping of it, still no plan, and there yes. is concern now, can this thing explode? They already have it as a no-fly zone and no one is allowed to bring a cell phone or an electronic wristwatch into the perimeter that has been set up around the well itself. What does that mean in terms of ultimate danger? We don't know, but people are furious. The people who have spent millions of dollars on their homes, these are $800,000 and up homes in Porter Ranch, are people who have watched the value of their real estate go to virtually nothing at this point. And there's a concern for health, and these are educated, moneyed people who have already lawyered up, and the lawsuits are going to go on forever. But that doesn't mean that anything has happened to make the site safer as of yet.
0: Well, now, haven't uh, thousands of people had to evacuate, and where have they gone?
2: wherever they can as you can imagine available housing in the San Fernando Valley at distance from Porter Ranch but still in proximity to things like schools and shopping got snapped up really fast some of it at wildly inflated prices. And there are investigations going on now as to price gouging. But I've heard of people who have been relocated as much as 50, 60 or more miles away. I've heard of people being located as far away as Lancaster. And that is just happening. And meanwhile, there are people on a waiting list to evacuate. Quite frankly, I would get out of Dodge to wherever possible that I could and then wait for the system to catch up and say, oh, here's a place and here's some money.
0: Well, now, with regard to uh, this radon and uh, the lead, and I think it was polonium, where do these elements end up? I mean, they're being discharged into the atmosphere, right? Where do they land?
2: Wherever they get to. The airborne ones, of course, can keep wafting. We recently did have some rain here in Southern California. What that does is it brings it all down to Earth. With the radon, that stays close to the ground, so as it decays, it is on the ground, it gets into our water supply, it gets into our food chain, as all radionuclides eventually do. So there's an ongoing risk from this. There's also the risk of mutation in the food supply, and nuclear materials last forever, at least in the terms of a human lifespan when we're talking about radioactive lead being a progeny product, like a decay product, I don't want to call it daughter products. that's what they call it in the industry, and I just think that's a slam to women. Um, But the decay products have a half-life of 22.3 years. That means that it's anywhere from 220 to 440 years before that lead will be not radioactive and not a contaminant in that way. But then it's still lead. And we know from lead paint and the lead that had to be taken out of gasoline in the cars, that lead in and of itself is a danger. So this stuff's not going anywhere, and it's going to be there forever.
0: And even the authorities, I understand, are claiming that they can't have this thing uh, capped before the spring. And you're saying that there's also a possibility that the whole thing could explode?
2: Now, I am saying that, I want to put a a, a codicil on that. That is a fear, because if they're already eliminating the inclusion of of electronic products that could set off a spark in this area, and if there is gas being released, if there is a spark, if there is some kind of, of fire element added there, Is it going to be a flame that goes up? Can it possibly go under? These are some of the questions that we have, and I do not put myself up as an expert on all aspects of Porter Ranch. The area that I really know about is the radon, because that's the radioactivity, and that's what I follow because of nuclear hot seat. So that part I can speak with great fluidity about. I happen to live 20 miles from Porter Ranch, There have been days when I wake up in the morning and I have a headache, and I don't get headaches. So I'm wondering if there's a connection, but there's nobody who can tell me. And is there a possibility that it could blow? I don't think it's impossible. I think that these people are flying by the seat of their pants. They're in an unprecedented situation. They lied for years about having that mechanism to be able to be a shut-off valve. They signed off every year since it was removed that, yes, it was there, yes, it was in place, and now they've been caught with their pants down. They don't know what to do, and there's a lot of PR going on around this.
0: In your book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, one mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and beyond. You focus mainly on nuclear reactors and the accidents that have happened with nuclear power. On March 11th, 2011, five years ago, is when the earthquake and tsunami hit Japan and the reactors at Fukushima. Three reactors went into meltdown. What is meltdown? Could you describe what transpired there?
2: Thanks for asking, because we are coming up on the fifth anniversary of Fukushima starting.
0: What happened
2: there, and there's a lot of disinformation and manipulation and suppression of information, however, what happened first was the earthquake, which was a 9.0, and that initially broke the steam pipes in the reactors. There's a lot of emphasis that has been put on, well, the tsunami created the accident. No. Those... Facilities, I don't like to call them plants. Plants are green-growing things that give us oxygen. They're good. This is a facility. And what happened with the reactors is they were already in a dangerous situation before the tsunami happened. Once the tsunami happened, they were unable to kick in their emergency cooling mechanisms because they had put their generators on the same level as sea level. And because of that, they were flooded out, so there was no cooling. When a nuclear core is not cooled, the reaction keeps building and building and building. And a meltdown situation, the common phrase you could use for it is China Syndrome. That's where they are so reacting with each other, building so much heat that explosions are a potential. And yes, there was an explosion at Fukushima on the third day, on March 14th. There's still debate as to whether that was a nuclear explosion or more of a a chemical-based explosion. But still we have pictures of it taking place. There was a complete flooding out of the cooling system. So the only way that it was kept cool was that one of the managers at the Fukushima site who understood exactly what was happening, a dear heroic man named Masao Yoshida, instructed the people who came to be known as the Fukushima 50, the ones who stayed behind to really fight, for the survival of the Earth, quite frankly, to take seawater and spew it onto the reactor in an attempt to keep it cool. What's not known is that by the second day, TEPCO headquarters were calling Yoshida and saying, what do you think you're doing spraying seawater on the nuclear reactors? You're going to hurt them. You're going to damage the equipment, not understanding the extent to which the equipment was already totally demolished. And Yoshida and the Fukushima 50 probably saved us from a far worse meltdown than actually occurred.
0: I'm speaking with producer and author Labi Halevi. Today's show, we're all in the nuclear hot seat. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Since that time, the corium, which is the melted core, has not been located because the radioactivity is so high, they can't even get robots close to it without them ceasing to function. A human being wouldn't survive more than 15 minutes at the very most in trying to figure out exactly what's going on on the inside. There is radiation that was released into the air, which was a plume that hit the United States eight days later, where there were areas of rain such as in oklahoma and st louis and new england the rain brought down radioactive particles from the jet stream where it just slammed the radiation levels on the earth below it the radiation releases from fukushima have not ended they are still ongoing there's some into the air primarily it's going now into the pacific ocean and We do not have proof that the recent die-offs of the whales and the dolphins and the birds and the starfish and the mackerel and the sardines and so many other life forms in the Pacific where there have been reported unprecedented die-offs taking place. We cannot prove that that is directly related to Fukushima because no research has been done to try and determine that fact. It is, however, a highly likely contributor if only because the plankton would be hit immediately with it and then would concentrate up the food tank to the point where either there isn't enough plankton to feed the whales and they're starving to death or they're being poisoned by radiation from the inside out. Again, nobody is looking at that because it's an expensive kind of an examination that would have to take place, research. And if you don't have research, you have planned deniability. And there's planned deniability everywhere you look in the nuclear industry, Fukushima and everywhere else.
0: It's five years now after the disaster at Fukushima. What is exactly happening there now? It's still actively polluting the Pacific Ocean, isn't it? Yes, it
2: is. And then there is the stored water that is radioactive there. And then there is their feeble attempts at decontamination of scraping the soil and putting them in plastic bags with no place to put the plastic bags. And now the plastic is decaying. So the material is being redistributed. The major impacts that we know about and that we can prove, first of all, is thyroid cancer rates in children from the area around Fukushima. The average In a population of that size, they've studied 300,000 children. And in that number, they found, I believe it's 127 cases of thyroid cancer already have been proven five years out. That may not sound like a lot, but in a population of that size, one would statistically expect there to be eight cases. So there's been an enormous increase in the cases of thyroid cancer that have been discovered in children thyroid cancer is one of the first to show up it starts showing up in three to five years but then just extends beyond that hard tumors take longer hard tumors don't start showing up until twelve to fifteen years and beyond after exposure to a high level of radiation so the cancer rates in japan which we're having a hard time getting an aggregate number on but we at least know that with thyroid cancer the rates. up. Radiation is being found everywhere in and around Fukushima and Tokyo which is so close by. Radiation has been found in the tap water in Tokyo. There are mutations that have been found in and around Fukushima. One of the researchers who's been doing work on Chernobyl since 15 years after that disaster began, a man named Dr. Timothy Mousseau, who I just interviewed for Nuclear Hot Seat, he'll be up next week. Dr. Mousseau has found mutations in bugs, in birds, and these absolutely parallel to the early mutations that were found at Chernobyl. So it seems that the mutational arc, as it were, at Fukushima is going to follow the same one at Chernobyl, where there are... Twisted trees, there are deformed bugs, where birds are found to have smaller brains, birds are found to have cataracts. Now they're studying mice and rats that they have captured in the area and they are showing signs of cataracts. And all of this is consistent with what we know about the physical reaction to exposure to radiation. So Chernobyl kind of sets the pathway of what's going to happen. It is not a safe place. It continues to be ultimately dangerous and an ultimate no go zone. And now we're seeing the same thing happen at Fukushima at the same time that the Japan government is pretending that everything is okay there, cutting off the resettlement monies, and forcing people to move back into the area. All of this in anticipation of 2020 when Tokyo is supposed to host what we are calling the No Olympics. They're hosting the 2020 Summer Olympics based on a lie that Shinzo Abe, the Prime Minister of Japan, told the Olympic Committee several years ago that, oh, we've got everything taken care of at Fukushima. It's not a problem anymore. It continues to be a problem. They're actually building stadiums and... Training facilities and housing facilities, and trying to cite some of the events in Fukushima Prefecture just to convince people that everything's fine there when really it's not, and it would be exposing the premier athletes of the world to high dose radiation that will compromise their health.
0: Now, with regard to the Pacific Ocean, do you think it's possible that the Pacific Ocean is in collapse?
2: Here's my short answer yes. It definitely has things wrong with it. Now, it was having problems before, acidification. There are various uh, viruses that attack certain populations. However, when you chart this ongoing collapse, starting with the sea stars showing signs one year after Fukushima. When you chart it year after year, first it was the starfish one year out. Two and three years out, we started seeing reduction to decimation of the sardine and mackerel population to the point where some of the native canneries in British Columbia had to close down because there was no population of fish for them to process. Now the longer-lived fish are also showing the signs. There is an almost complete collapse of certain populations of salmon. A lot of the salmon is finding to be diseased. We are hearing of the deaths of whales and porpoises and sea lions and birds and large wash-ups of fish. All of this has been in the last five years. So just as a matter of logic, what has changed in the last five years? Well, five years ago was Fukushima.
0: Yes, and I've read for a long time that when tuna is tested, it always shows radioactive or some radioactivity in the tuna fish.
2: This started less than one year after Fukushima. I believe it was in May of 2012, only slightly over one year after Fukushima, that bluefin tuna caught off the coast of California were tested for radiation. And every sample found had radioactivity in it. Tuna have a very long migration pattern through the ocean and do come close to Japan. They're also very long-lived fish. So this was radiation in fish that were probably multiple years old, but just a little bit over a year after Fukushima were showing signs of the radiation. Here's what's interesting. They haven't really been testing for it since. There was a program... In Southern California, I believe it came from uh, the University of California at San Diego, and they were the ones who discovered this initial contamination. Immediately thereafter, they lost their funding on the program and it was not renewed. So that's the kind of manipulation that we're seeing behind the scenes to keep the public in ignorance and to, I believe, manage panic more than provide for any kind of safety. That by suppressing the information, there's more of a chance that people will not be freaked out about this and demand answers, but will go about not paying attention to it.
0: What about the International Atomic Energy Agency? The IA- oh, completely
2: compromised. Oh, it's an apologist organization for the nuclear industry. Here's what you have to understand. All of the official bodies and This is coming from someone who before Fukushima was like a middle-of-the-road moderate Democrat. I just kind of went along with the system. My eyes have been opened by this issue to what's actually going on behind the scenes. Every nuclear-related agency, industry organization, supposedly monitoring organization, is absolutely compromised on behalf of the nuclear industry. And they exist, in my view to hide the truth, damn those of us as tree-huggers and uninformed amateurs who have been studying this so hard to try and come up with the information and the proof, and we have it, and also convince the media that there's no story here, move along, when my belief is that for a diligent reporter almost anywhere in the country, There is a Pulitzer lurking in the nuclear story if they just bother to put the dots together, and we, the activists, can help them find the dots and put them together. So IAEA, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, even the Environmental Protection Agency, they all exist to say, no problem, nothing to pay attention to, move along.
0: Well, now, what is the relationship between the International Atomic Energy Agency and the World Health Organization? I believe
2: that WHO is in charge of the IAEA, or it is one of its agencies, but realize that there has been a huge scandal dealing with the World Health Organization on its response to both Chernobyl and Fukushima. They issued massive reports, lots of doctors, lots of footnotes, lots of everything, basically saying, no problem here, nothing to pay attention to, move along. However... If any diligent reporter chooses to check out the work, either independent WHO, which is based in Geneva, Switzerland, it is the counter to the World Health Organization and points out its many flaws, especially on nuclear. And also, the independent WHO put out their own massive, completely footnoted report on the WHO report on Chernobyl and pointed out exactly where, who, cooked the books, cooked the numbers, to make it look like there really wasn't a problem when indeed there was. The exact same thing happened when the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, which is allied with WHO, put out their report about Fukushima that basically said, eh, nothing to worry about there. International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War from their base in Germany put out a counter-report to that, that... Takes it apart point by point, footnote by footnote, has its own set of footnotes in there, and shows that, yes, there is tremendous need for concern about Fukushima. Now, the problem is that when any journalist or interested individual goes online and looks for, okay, let's see an official report on Fukushima, because of the massive PR campaign and monies that are spent promoting that perspective for the official bodies, The first, like, 40 pages are going to come up with the IAEA or the WHO reports, as opposed to knowing where to look to find the ones that actually counter it with very solid information. This information is so important that I have a duo of recordings dealing with each of these, speaking with people who were intimately involved in the creation of the reports, and they're each one-hour programs on nuclear hot seat, so that if people want the short version of what that is about, they can look to those programs.
0: I'm speaking with producer and author Libby Halevi. Today's show, we're all in the nuclear hot seat. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is the job of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and where does its funding come from?
2: Oh, that is such a good question. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which many of us call the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission, is supposed to, according to their slogan, protect people and the environment. However, it is a perfect example of a perfectly captured regulatory body. They get their funding from the nuclear industry based on how many nuclear facilities are operating. So if they start closing down facilities, they're slitting their own throat from a funding perspective because they're not going to get any money for those facilities, and they're going to have to cut down on their operations. So the NRC, they are known for not turning down any regulatory request that is made on them by the nuclear industry. They are well known for taking concerned activists, which include scientists and epidemiologists and engineers who have genuine concerns about the safety of our aging, leaking nuclear reactor fleet that is out there, and treating us like little children and patting us on the head and saying, there, are there, missy, don't worry, you're pretty little head about it. Well, we are worried and everyone deserves to be worried. Just so that you know the backstory on this. Nuclear reactors, when they were built, were only designed to operate for 30 years and then be mothballed because the engineers who created them knew that there was something called embrittlement, basically corrosion of the containment materials around every nuclear reactor because it's constantly being bombarded as the nuclear reaction takes place. So there is progressively wear and cracking that takes place as a result. Even a microscopic crack in the containment issue can lead to radiation being released. Right now, we're in a situation with Indian Point, which is two nuclear reactors functioning out of license. Their licenses have elapsed. They're both over 40 years old. And they are within 35 miles of midtown Manhattan. And now we have a report that in one of their test wells, with which they test the groundwater around the plant, they have found radiation at levels 65,000 times higher than what is permitted. And just realize that if something is permitted, that doesn't mean that it's safe. It just means that some arbitrary bureaucrat within the system said, oh, we probably won't peek out at anything higher than this, so let's set the level here. That's my perspective on it. So we've got the water at 65,000 times more powerful, more disintegrations per minute than it's supposed to be. And Energy, the company behind Indian Point, is saying, ah, it's nothing to worry about. Now realize this. Anytime there is a nuclear accident of any sort, everybody in an official position will say, eh, it's nothing to worry about. Pay no attention to that radioactive, glowing little man behind the curtain when, in fact, there's a lot to worry about, because the water that's there cannot be contained. In in about two months, it has been estimated that water will migrate to the Hudson River. And now we're talking about the drinking water for the city of New York.
0: How many commercial nuclear reactors are there in the United States? And what can you tell us about license renewal of reactors? Is this being done
2: Alas, it is always done. The NRC is well known for rubber stamping renewals and not allowing them. So right now we have 99 working nuclear reactors, meaning they are online, in the United States. We've had a lot of shutdowns. There have been 13 over the last five years. However, every nuclear reactor still has on-site both the physical containment structure and surrounding buildings, and the containment structure and anything inside of it is highly radioactive. Plus, because we have no repository for nuclear materials, high-level nuclear materials, all of the fuel assemblies, which contain fuel rods, all of which contain as a waste product weapons-grade plutonium, are stored on-site at nuclear reactors. So even though a facility is shut down doesn't mean that it's not still dangerous. It is. And with plutonium having a radioactive half-life of 24,000 years, you put that through 20 half-life cycles and what you end up with is 480,000 years basically forever. That stuff is going to be a plague on this planet. So. We are more than playing with fire here. As regards the licensing, as I said, the licenses were only supposed to be granted for 40 years. Well, the majority of facilities have already received a 20-year extension, despite the fact that there are breakages, there are leakages, there are fires, there are problems on these sites every week. The NRC has a very public report that they put out that is the week's nuclear accidents Um, I refer to that as the NRC duck and cover report because it's a pattern of the decay that has been taking place in these facilities. Now they are starting to grant additional 20-year extensions so that facilities can be licensed for 80 years. This is insanity, and it's all based on money. It's all based on the financial rewards and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission keeping itself in business instead of putting itself out of business, which is what it should be in the business of doing.
0: What is the financial liability of the nuclear industry for accidents?
2: Because of something that was put in place, I believe in the 1950s, called the Price-Anderson Act, for any nuclear accident, the limit on liability for the nuclear industry, total is 12 billion. And while that might sound like a lot, when it comes to nuclear, that is nothing. Realize that each of these reactors makes a profit for the company that is operating it of approximately one million dollars per day per reactor. Those are really deep pockets and they don't want to give them up. After the twelve billion dollars it falls on the shoulders of the American taxpayer to pick up the tab, and from a single accident, this could be in the hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars, because there's no way to clean it up. There's no way to mitigate it. There's no way to create safety, but there will be at least actions taken to create the illusion of safety. I want to say that there are really good people who happen to work in this industry. There are real engineers. There are People who genuinely care, but they are hamstrung by an industry that does not put people first. It puts profits first. And because of that, we are all put at risk. If these things are leaking after 40 years, if they're cracking after 40 years, if we're starting to find electrical fires on sites, which happens multiple times. I just read a story this morning about fire and explosion that took place at the Brunswick Nuclear Facility in North Carolina. There's been an emergency declared. The reactor itself was put on scram, which means like emergency brakes, cut the power, take it all the way down. And at this point, they don't even know what caused the problem. This happens all the time. The NRC has these cute little titles that they will say on their four-level scale of what's wrong at a facility. The first level if there's a problem they call an unusual event. There is nothing more usual than an unusual event at a nuclear facility. Happens all the time. The second level up is alert. Second level is really a lot more dangerous than that because it means that it's probably gotten off-site. And from there, it just keeps going. There's always the attempt to diminish our awareness of the problem. Again, everybody says at the start, that there is no problem. And yet, we have an eternal problem on our hand, which is the problem of nuclear waste, because there's no way to put it, no way to neutralize it, nothing that can be done with it, every attempt to do anything with it has failed, and nothing is the long-term storage, because let's face it, how are we going to, in this day and age, create something that can encapsulate radioactive plutonium that has a half-life of 24,000 years?
0: Well, since you brought up what to do with nuclear waste, let's talk about the Bridgeton landfill fire and the nearby Westlake landfill contamination. Now, these environmental disasters are near St. Louis, Missouri, aren't they?
2: It, it's actually it's it's a suburban area in North St. Louis.
0: Could you explain these disasters? I think maybe a lot of people have never heard of them.
2: I'm so glad you asked me because this is a front line nuclear battle that's taking place in real time right now. And it points to the nuclear industry's dirty little secret, which is all about the waste. Back in World War II era Manhattan Project, there was manufacturing by Mallinckrodt in St. Louis of materials for the first bombs that were exploded. The Trinity Blast, which was the test in New Mexico, and then Hiroshima, Nagasaki. The uranium was processed into fissionable materials at Mallinckrodt. It also created an enormous amount of radioactive waste. It was initially stored at the airport in St. Louis, and then it was bought as a possible resource by a company that ran a waste site, a waste dump that at that time was kind of out in the boonies from St. Louis. They bought the materials in 1974. Company goes bust, another one buys it, company goes bust, another one buys it. This goes through a couple of cycles. The bottom line is that they illegally buried in an unlined trench enough radioactive, highly radioactive nuclear material to more than fill the gateway arch that is the marker of St. Louis. If you look at that enormous structure, imagine all of that being made of nuclear waste, and that is what is buried in this landfill, the Westlake landfill in North St. Louis. That in itself is bad because the materials have leached out into the environment. There is proven contamination of Coldwater Creek. Which goes through there, and there are more than 4,000 cancer cases which have been found in the local area, including cases of appendix cancer, which most experts have never heard of. They have more than 40 cases of it there. It has leached out into the water, into the plants, into the environment. People are sick there. And now, in the adjacent landfill, which is the Bridgeton landfill, there is an underground fire that has been burning for over five years. They can't put it out because of the toxic stew of materials that are underground and burning. It's like the peat fires in Ireland where something will set it on fire and they'll burn for decades because there's no way to put them out. In this instance, the fire has been slowly encroaching on the Westlake landfill, and the radioactive materials. The last time we had an accurate report on this was last October when it was announced that the fire was within approximately three football fields in length from where the radioactive waste was buried. And if that fire intersects with the radioactive waste, there could be a smoke cloud that bears radioactive materials that gets released and then where St. Louis is supposed to go. So there has been an enormous, grassroots, mother-driven—it's the St. Louis moms who are coming out in force on behalf of their families, their children, who have been fighting this and fighting this brilliantly in getting the word out that the cleanup program needs to be put under the Army Corps of Engineers— the EPA came in and said, oh, there's nothing to worry about. And the EPA's answer to everything is the dog ate my homework. Uh, they should be shut down. Uh, they should be replaced by another agency. And certainly the head of the EPA, Gina, never met a nuke I didn't like in cover for McCarthy, deserves to absolutely be tanked if not brought up on charges for her negligence in this case and so many others, especially as regards any nuclear issue. But the moms have succeeded. At this point, there's been a Senate bill that has passed out of committee and has been voted on and passed to get the cleanup put under the Army Corps of Engineers, which actually has a program in place to do this exact work. It's a bureaucratic boondoggle why it has not been under a program called Wrap, which is for formerly used nuclear materials. But they're in the process of doing that. In the meantime, they are bringing in national and international experts to speak to their people, to learn the protective ways. They're doing a symposium on the 20th of February in North St. Louis, a free symposium which will feature Dr. Helen Caldecott, Who is a Nobel Peace Prize nominee for having co founded Physicians for Social Responsibility? The Australian physician who has been such a fierce battler on behalf of nuclear shutdown and getting rid of nuclear materials for more than forty years now. Bob Alvarez, who used to be an advisor to the Clinton White House on nuclear and environmental matters, and many other speakers are going to be there, and I will be there covering it. It's going to be an in-gathering of all the people who are concerned enough about this to take a stance and take action, because they are finding cancer clusters. Autoimmune diseases run rampant autism in the children, all kinds of fertility issues, all of these are known to be related to radiation exposure, and these are all being experienced by the people who live in that area. To say nothing of just the stench that comes off the site from the fire that is burning there.
0: I'm speaking with producer and author Libby Halevi. Today's show, we're all in the nuclear hot seat. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Could you tell us about your personal experience in Middletown, Pennsylvania, very close to Three Mile Island in March of 1979? You were visiting friends, weren't you?
2: Yes, I happen to have some of the worst timing of any human being you could ever possibly meet when it comes to nuclear matters. I went to visit a friend of mine who I knew in Boston. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And it turns out she had just recently gotten married and moved with her husband to a small town in Pennsylvania. He had gotten a job with the Harrisburg Airport. He was an airport mechanic. And in going to visit her, she greeted me at the airport on a Saturday morning. I'd taken a red eye out from Los Angeles. And she gave me a big hug and said, you know, you've come to the right place to cool out. Middletown is really middle town. Nothing important ever happens here. And five days later, one mile from her home, the place where I was staying, the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island malfunctioned and went into partial meltdown. We ignored it the best we could for the first two days. My friends did not have a TV set, so we were not caught up in the media hysteria. And it wasn't until the third day when I was alone in the house, she and her husband had both gone off to work, I heard a loudspeaker go down the middle of the street and I actually had to run downstairs and open the door in order to hear them say, keep your doors and windows closed, stay inside, and do not go outside unless you absolutely have to. I wish this situation on nobody, not even my worst enemies, because at that point, I didn't know how much radiation had been released. I didn't know if maybe that thing could blow up. That was not the case, but I didn't know that at the time. And I was raised during the Cold War era of the 1950s. So I knew all about what radiation could do to the human body, because in those days we were told the truth, because radiation, if we were to be exposed to it, was going to come from the Russians, and the Russians were bad, and we were going to be made afraid of the Russians. Instead, all of that transferred over to the fact that I was being hit by unknown amounts of radiation, courtesy my own government on American soil. And I had no transportation. There was no public transportation. There was not a basement in the house in which I could hide from radiation. And this was a total crisis. I did not know at any second if it was going to be my last conscious on Earth in this body. And my friends finally were able to get through on the phone. The phones weren't operating because, of course, they were completely jammed, and we evacuated to a place where friends of theirs were 150 miles away. My friends were finally able to get through on the phone. They told me they were coming to pick me up. We evacuated three adults and a cat in a little VW Bug and went to friends of theirs 150 miles away, which was the first time we had a chance to see on television what had happened. And you can catch this on YouTube. It's Walter Cronkite on Three Mile Island, and it was the angriest guy I had seen him since the Democratic National Convention of 1968. Um, He was furious, and we were learning about this clown caucus that had been going on at three mile island and in those days there wasn't the playbook for how these things were supposed to be handled to keep public panic to a minimum because realize an accident happens nowadays all they want to do is maintain control of the level of panic and reassure people that there's no problem even as the people in the know are escaping We know from Fukushima that while people were being told to stay in their homes, those who worked at TEPCO were busy running to pick up their children and leave the area as fast as they could. This is the way the industry operates. But back at Three Mile Island, we were still getting the real information, or as much of it as was available. We never got accurate readings as to how much radiation was released. They said that the monitors didn't work. I had in my naivete assumed that because the government goes with the lowest bidder on equipment, that this was something like a thermostat. And it just, when the time came, it didn't operate. I only learned after Fukushima and after I started producing nuclear hot seat that the reason it didn't work was because the radiation levels were so high, it fried the tolerance level of the equipment. But we've never gotten accurate readings on that. We were never told how much was actually released, and I only learned again in the last two years that I was in the pathway of the radiation release on the second day when I, thinking nothing about this and wanting to get a freelance story, went strolling into Middletown, Pennsylvania to do interviews with people and get a story. So I was exposed, but again, never knew how much.
0: Now, after you were evacuated uh, for I don't remember how long, you then had to return to the area just to get a flight out. Isn't that right? That's correct.
2: And that allowed me to do two things. First of all, I attended a press conference by the NRC that was being held in the gym of a local high school. And, um, again, they were handling us. They were managing us. They were not getting hard answers, even though the collected media of the world was there. And very nervous reporters who did not want to be in a radiation zone but had to be there in order to cover the story. The second thing was I hired a freelance photographer who was there to go closer to the cooling towers, and take some pictures of me with it in the background. You know, it's kind of like the equivalent of a selfie these days. I figured, in for a penny, in for a pound, I've already been exposed. I might as well have some proof, because if I don't, nobody's going to believe this story. It's just too crazy that somebody picks up to take a trip and lands one mile away, literally out the front door to the corner, look over my shoulder. There are the cooling towers. Nobody would believe that if I couldn't prove it. So I do have photos that show me posing with the radioactive with the cooling towers of Three Mile Island during the time of this accident. And then I returned home to Los Angeles and completely fell apart.
0: Boy, I'll bet. well now have there been any have there been any tests done on uh, survivors impact on their health after Three Mile Island?
2: Here's the short answer. No. However, Recently, there have been some epidemiological studies done in the area around Three Mile Island, and it was found that The area that includes Three Mile Island, a 90-mile radius that includes 13 different nuclear reactors and includes New York State, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, has the highest level of thyroid cancer in the country. There's just been a report published on that by Radiation and Public Health. You can search under Joe Mangano as one of the two authors. The other is Dr. Janet Sherman, and what they did was they went into health statistics from this area and simply stripped out the ones that were relevant to what they were looking for, which were the rates of thyroid cancer, and found an enormous increase in this area. This includes the 50-mile radius around Three Mile Island.
0: Now, I've heard you uh, talk about something called a rainout. What's a rainout?
2: That's a great question. Every explosion that has taken place of a nuclear device, and that includes not only Trinity, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, but all of the atmospheric tests that took place around the world injected radioactive debris particles into the jet stream, where they remain suspended. In order for rain droplets to fall, whether they fall as rain or snow, they must form around particulate matter. If the raindrop forms around radioactive particulate matter that is in the jet stream, it falls to Earth and will bring it down in a concentrated area. So that explains why, after Fukushima, we saw radiation spikes in such unusual, unexpected places as Oklahoma, St. Louis, throughout New England, especially Vermont, All of these were areas that had significant rain in the few weeks, the first few weeks after Fukushima.
0: And what led you to finally write, yes, I glow in the dark, one mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and beyond? I couldn't not do it. I've been a
2: writer my entire life. I've worked in the entertainment industry. I'm an award-winning playwright. I've just been writing since I was a kid. And I knew I had a compelling story to take. It took me many years before I was able to tell it. I started producing nuclear hot seat only three months after Fukushima because after Three Mile Island, I did not become an activist. I tried, but there was too much post traumatic stress. I was really too wigged out by it and too concerned about my health that I did not go into the activist movement. I just couldn't bear it. And I ignored. Nuclear matters as best I could, and then Fukushima happened. And if Three Mile Island was a mule kick that knocked me out of the life I had been living, Fukushima was the mule kick that put me back into alignment with the life that I had before, which was one as a a visible activist on a number of causes.
0: Libby Halevi, thank you very much. You're entirely welcome. I've been speaking with Labi Halevi. Today's show has been, We're All in the Nuclear Hot Seat. Labi Halevi is the producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, a weekly international news magazine on all things nuclear, from a different perspective. She is the author of, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. An award-winning playwright and broadcaster, she was visiting friends one mile from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island when it happened. She has done extensive research on ways to best help safeguard against nuclear radiation exposure for radiation awareness protection talk at raptawareness.com. That's R-A-P-T awareness Visit her website at nuclearhotseat.com to listen to or download her weekly podcast and a free chapter of her book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark. That's NuclearHotSeat.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yarrow Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at GunsAndButter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at Faulkner at GunsAndButter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GB Radio.
1: Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now, the question is are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom, that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand, and divided we will fall, cause love conquers all, you understand what I'm saying, this is a call for all you sleeping souls, wake up and take control of your own cipher, and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what decides yourself for peace and release you dig me you got me